It was July 2019, just a little over three years ago to the day. Apart from the normal heat in the summer, there was nothing unusual occurring at that moment, at least in one young man's life. In fact, he had just gotten off a nine-day vacation. It was relaxing, cell phone was off, it was a pretty good time. And all he had on his mind was the normal transition everyone has to face. You know that transition from being on vacation to coming back to the real world? However, his vacation to work transition wouldn't occur like previous times in his life. This time he found himself contemplating an opportunity that would alter the direction of he and his family lives for the years ahead. You see, he got word that a pastoral search committee from a local church in Arkansas was looking for a pastor. And contrary to finding a pastor through a massive stack of resumes, which is typically what large churches do when they're trying to find their next pastor, this local church search committee found this young man by listening to his sermons on the internet. In fact, his resume wasn't all that impressive to begin with. It would have been a lost cause if they would have looked at his resume, but such is God's kind providence. But you should also know that they found this man's sermons not because he was such a well-known preacher or someone widely listened to, but because of who his senior pastor was, his boss. He was that kind of well-known preacher. And this young man just happened to be serving on staff there for about four years as an assistant pastor. For this young man, he was just a regular Christian guy serving on staff at a local church. Not well-known, no big name, nothing much to write home about. He was just seeking to do like many other believers aim to do with their lives, like many believers sitting in this room this morning, seeking to please the Lord and to do the Lord's will in his life. He was praying, serving, working, waiting, and simply trying to do the next thing for the Lord, whatever and whatever wherever that would be. What he didn't know is that that next thing was speaking to the chairman of that search committee with a vacancy that they had in the senior pastor role in their local church. Through the course of a few conversations, it became quite evident that the young man was now seriously considering whether or not to pursue this opportunity further. Fast forward a few months, Labor Day weekend then brought with it a combination of curiosity and excitement as the two parties met together here in the River Valley. The young man and his wife and the search committee with their spouses joined together over meals and conversations, each of us simply doing the next thing in discerning the will of God. After traveling nearly 1,200 miles on plane and getting settled into their hotel, the dive into the deep end would then begin. In total, they would spend nearly 14 hours together asking questions, offering encouragements, asking questions, and offering encouragements. When it was all said and done, the search committee then expressed what the young man with his wife had mutually affirmed, that there was a strong consensus among them to move forward, a strong agreement that moving forward together was the right next thing to do. However, moving forward together would only be the first step to a much larger step 
in the weeks ahead. Asking questions and answering questions. Expressing concerns and shepherding those concerned hearts. This back and forth between the young man and between large pockets of this congregation would then take place over a three and a half day, 11 hours total, blind date church interview parade. In fact, hundreds of people came. Some came with burning questions. Many were silently sitting there, like watching a serious golf match. Others slipped into the room and came with mixed motives and with a mixed agenda. But for this young man, all he knew was that his hands were going to be full if this church would call him to be their next senior pastor. After the round robin of questions coming from every conceivable angle, the final test would come on a Sunday in mid-October, the Lord's Day. But this Lord's Day was slightly different. Not different insofar as a gathering of believers coming together, as Christians normally do. No, this Sunday was unusually packed to the brim. Uh, Some might even say it was standing room only. Others, in -in tongue-in-cheek, might have said it was a packed suitcase with all sorts of goodies and clothes within that only time would reveal what was inside the suitcase. Two sermons later, Another round of direct, personal, and rapid-fire series of questions came to the table. And the young man did what he had done for the previous three months since meeting these dear believers in Arkansas. He answered their questions. And then he left the room. After sitting in a chair, exhausted and spent from the week now behind him, waiting to hear if this church would have him be their next senior pastor, the vote came in. An encouraging and humbling grand total of a 91.4% vote in approval to call this young man to be the next senior pastor had occurred. The evening was a night of remembrance, a night that really culminated nearly 10 months of praying and preparation on the search committee's part, three months or so on the young man's part. But for a pocket of people in the congregation, it was a night they dreaded as they were anxious and fearful about a transition in leadership after a long pastoral tenure. And for many others who made up this church, it was a night they had looked forward to for a very long time. Nonetheless, the super-majority vote seemed to speak for itself. It seemed like God was answering prayers. God seemed to have been preparing people's hearts. God seemed to have been leading and providing and granting confirmation after confirmation. The good hand of the Lord seemed to be more real and tangible in so many people's lives that it's almost impossible to put into words. A smooth transition in pastoral leadership was unfolding before these people's eyes. A divine display of the powerful and beautiful tapestry of God's providence, even in the midst of fallible human beings. A transition that would be a testimony for decades to come, to show other churches what happens when God's people learn how to be still. When God's people learn how to pray, when God's people learn how to confess and repent of sin, and when God's people learn how to ask boldly 
and make their requests known as their sovereign God meets our needs. But would God's good hand be the only hand at work? With God's powerful hand of favor seeming to bless this transition, in his strong and mighty arm maneuvering people to bring about this successful transition, would this transition occur without opposition? Would it come to pass without pushback? Would it come to fruition without a fight? This morning, we pick back up in our sermon series in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And we find ourselves looking at a transition in his life that showed the beautiful and powerful good hand of God leading him every step of the way. In his transition from Babylon to Jerusalem, so not Arkansas, by the way, from serving as cupbearer under a pagan king to becoming the future governor in Jerusalem, he would eventually face opposition. Nehemiah would soon face a battle, a battle like he had never faced before, a fierce fight that would put him and his fellow Jews through a fiery furnace where their faith in God would be rigorously tested. Please open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 227. Nehemiah chapter 4. Please follow with me. Now when Sanballat, heard that we were building the wall. He was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yeah, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Now, when, but when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. 
In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread. And we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work. And half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. This is God's word. Up until this point in the book of Nehemiah, we've seen a lot of positive momentum, haven't we? The ball's been getting down the field. They've been getting some W's on the scorecard and on the record. God has moved, think about it, thousands of hearts, the Jews. He's moved the heart of a pagan king, King Artaxerxes. He's moved Nehemiah's heart to travel over 850 miles to come from Babylon to Jerusalem. And God has provided the security and the resources to reestablish God's people in the land. God has provided exactly what he said he would do in Jeremiah 29 to reestablish and restore them back into Jerusalem, their hometown, after 70 years of exile in order to rebuild and repair 
the city. But you've probably been asking yourself over the last several weeks, what's the big deal about these walls? I mean, it's walls. If you saw someone talking to a wall, you might want to put your arm around them. At the end of the day, walls are inanimate objects. They don't have feelings. They don't have a family. They don't have an eternal future. Well, friends, that's because the walls were used as physical structures to protect the people from outside invaders. The height and durability of the walls would be a warning to the outside enemy that the military and community was strong and resilient. However, the physical walls were also an x-ray. They were showing others how the people of God were doing spiritually. You see, the walls had been broken down, destroyed by the Babylonians decades previously. And friends, those broken down walls and those ashes that had laid on the ground for some time, it was a reminder of their ancestors' sin. Sin that had occurred from covenant breaking with God. And friends, we've looked at in the first few chapters of this book, something I just want to continue to remind us. Sin always has consequences. Sin always has consequences. That's why the exile happened in 586 BC. That's why the place was in shambles when this pagan army came and destroyed and ransacked their community. And yes, in Christ Jesus, we can be forgiven of all our sins. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. But we still reap what we sow. And sowing to our carnal flesh in time will reap corruption in our life. And the greater the sin committed, the more of a mess it makes in your life. And the bigger mess it makes for other people's lives too. To give us just a fresh reminder again of how bad things had been for the people of God, look back with me in Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1 opened up describing both the city and the people's lives in a bleak way. Look with me at Nehemiah 1 verse 3. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So, real quick summary, things are not just sort of bad. They're not just, eh, don't want to look at it too long. No, they're really, really bad. Their lives are turned upside down. They were aimless, they were broken, and they needed God to revive in a way that they couldn't do themselves. They needed their hearts revived in Him. So, how would God do it? How would God rebuild the city walls, and rebuild their lives. Well, in part, he would do it by forming and raising up a leader. And that shouldn't be rocket science for us, right? We have one God in three persons, and he doesn't need us ultimately to accomplish anything. God can do everything on his own. He created the world out of nothing, ex nihilo. And yet the God who ordains the ends 
is also the God who ordains the means. Jesus told his own disciples, the crowds that came to him, they were like sheep without a what? Shepherd. Friends, sheep are aimless without under-shepherds. Sheep are aimless without under-shepherds. And friends, Nehemiah was one of those under-shepherds that God was raising up. In Nehemiah 3, which we looked at last week, Nehemiah had led thousands of Jews to labor on the walls in their respective skill sets and families. And from the looks of it, the transition was going spectacular. On paper, Nehemiah is checking off every box on the success chart. He arrives safely. He puts together his plan. He casts his vision to the people. And what do we read in verse 6 of chapter 4? The people had a mind to work. Uh, How many of you, raise your hand, love to-do list? Half of us. So if you're disorganized in your life, find the person who raised their hand. Okay, amongst you who raised your hand, how many of you just love scratching off that to-do list? It's just like a sensation to see lines through your, I've done that. In fact, I'm going to do two lines just to make sure everyone else sees it. Friends, that's probably what Nehemiah is doing right here. I got to Jerusalem, check. I got the money, check. I got the A team to protect me, check. I've got hordes of people ready to work, check. I got a king's backing, check. Man, we just smooth sailing. So far, Nehemiah is successful. He's proven himself as a man probably worthy to get behind, right? But friends, Nehemiah's leadership has not been put to the test just yet. Just like there's a big difference between friends that are there for you when life is good and friends who will jump in the foxhole with you when life is bad. Would Nehemiah jump into the foxhole with these Jews when life got hard? Would Nehemiah take the first plane ticket out of there back to Susa in his nice, comfortable, well-taken-care-of, cupbearer job? When the going got tough, when the honeymoon was over, And these aimless Jews finally are getting to work, doing what God wants them to do. When Nehemiah gets tested and when the people of God are opposed, how would Nehemiah measure up? Friends, just as a sidebar, do you remember in 2 Corinthians 11 where the Apostle Paul really spends the entire chapter defending to a messed up and backwards church of why he was a legit apostle. You see, these so-called super apostles, these false teachers, were going around Corinth saying Paul's a phony, he's in ministry for the wrong reasons, he's here for his own agenda, he's not real, you shouldn't listen to him, he's a phony preacher. You know what Paul does for a whole chapter to defend his ministry? He spends verse after verse talking about how much he suffered for Christ and stayed faithful to him. Friends, there is something significant to learn right there. One of the most important qualities you'll ever find in a leader 
is not found when everything is going well. When everyone is getting along, when everyone is patting you on the back and singing your praises, no. The most important qualities you want in a leader is when they are put to the test. When the heat is turned up and the true character and convictions of their hearts are brought to light, that's when you get to find out what a leader is made of. Proverbs 17.3 says, The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests hearts. So if courageous and commendable leaders are born through adversity and cowards and counterfeits are exposed in adversity, how would Nehemiah measure up? Would he arise to the occasion or would he compromise and drop the ball? In Nehemiah chapter 4, we get to find out. Look at verses 1 to 3. Verses 1 to 3, we read, Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Friends, in verses 1 to 3, we see something that's going to be a common thread between chapters 4, 5, and 6. Something that occurs throughout church history, something that occurs on the mission field today, something that occurred in the life of Jesus, and something that occurs in our individual lives and families And it is the main point of the sermon. So if you're taking notes, here's your main point. When God's good hand is at work, the enemies of God will work overtime to try and stop it. When God's good hand is at work, the enemies of God will work overtime to try and stop it. I'll say it again. When God's good hand is at work, the enemies of God will work overtime to try and stop it. Here in our passage, for the second time, we are introduced to these hobbit-sounding names, Sanballat and Tobiah. So we've actually heard about these guys briefly, just to remind ourselves and go a little deeper on who these characters are. Turn back to Nehemiah chapter 2. It's the first time that they're mentioned in this book. Nehemiah chapter 2. You'll notice there in Nehemiah 2 verse 10. So if you like to underline, you can do that if you'd like. Or write in your sermon notes. And in Nehemiah 2 verse 19. So verse 10 and verse 19. Both of these men, Sanballat and Tobiah, are mentioned. And in fact, there's an additional name alongside them. Geshem the Arab. And these men are greatly displeased with what Nehemiah is doing for Jerusalem. Verse 10 says they are greatly displeased that someone like Nehemiah would give these people even a fair shot. 
that he would travel into their territory and to care about the welfare of these people. Their physical welfare, their economic welfare, their civil welfare, and their spiritual welfare. They didn't like it. Verse 19 then goes on to say that their disdain and their displeasure that was lodged in their hearts came spewing out through slanderous words. Speech filled with grumbling and griping. They even accused Nehemiah of having evil motives by saying that his intent on being there is that he was an insurrectionist. He was there to revolt against the king. In other words, they're basically saying this, Nehemiah, you're not the real deal. Nehemiah, you've come with a different agenda. You're a self-seeking man, and you are not someone people should trust. You do not want God's best for these people, and the king should be suspicious of you. Well, that's exactly what people do when their hearts are not right with God. They're saying things like this. He's a fraud. He's a liar. He's like a group of unhappy people bellyaching and bickering in an echo chamber. Do you agree with my problems with Nehemiah? Do you agree with my problems with Nehemiah? And they feed off each other. Sounds a lot like the Pharisees and how they treated Jesus, isn't it? They called the prince of peace the prince of demons. They called the good shepherd the ancient serpent. They called the divine son of God the devil himself. The religious leaders in Jesus' day thought they were doing God a favor by putting Jesus to death on a cross, all while not realizing they were crucifying the Lord of glory. Friends, that is exactly the schemes of the evil one. Satan and his servants disguise themselves as angels of light. And his many minions will violently oppose the true light, the light of God's presence, the light of God's spirit, who indwells his sons and daughters. Friends, let me just say something that Christians have grown up learning and then allowed the world and secularism to just kind of make them numb. Satan is not a negative emotion. Satan is not bad vibes. Satan is a created being who really exists. He's a fallen angel that hates Jesus Christ. He hates the glory of God. He hates faithful Christians. He hates Christian marriages. He hates faithful pastors. He hates faithful local churches. Friends, he hates because he first hated Jesus. Friends, hatred is the devil's love language. You ever met someone that, that just so angry? and hateful, and mean, and mad. They grip their teeth, and their veins pop out at you. Have you ever just, just stopped and breathed? That there's something else going on? 
behind this human being is the father of lies. He hates. He's a murderer from the beginning, Jesus said. What did we sing earlier as Ian led us in a mighty fortress of our God? His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth, there is no equal. Friends, this is the love language of our ancient foe. He has come to kill, steal, and destroy people's lives. People's lives just like you and me. And friends, if you think a pastor is a rosy job, some pastors go play golf all day and don't groan among the sheep and prepare sermons. That's not the pastor you hired. I'm not good at golf anyway. Charlie invites me every once in a while. He can tell you how bad it is if I try. Amen. There we go. So I just made that decision early on in my ministry. I'll just go every blue moon with Charlie. The hardest thing about being a pastor is first me looking into the mirror, realizing I'm not like Jesus. The second most difficult thing of being a pastor is not preparing sermons. It's not public speaking. It's not members meetings. It's not budget meetings. The hardest thing for me as a pastor is when I look at dear sheep in the eyes and they're being led astray by the evil one. You pray, you plead, you run after them. And it seems like every once in a while, another one's gone. Another one's trapped. Another one's been deceived. It guts me and it guts your elders. And I know it guts you because it should hurt when sheep are being led astray and deceived by the evil one. Friends, Satan wants to rip apart and destroy everything good he has done in your life. The greatest lie that Satan has ever told and billions of people have believed it is that he doesn't exist. That's the greatest lie. But friends, take heed. Be warned, he is roaming around. Do not be deceived. Turn back to Nehemiah chapter four. So who are these men? Why were they so opposed to Nehemiah and the work he was doing for God's people? Uh, there's three names he mentions, Sanballat the Horonite. Uh, Sanballat's gonna show up the most in Nehemiah, chapter two, chapter four, chapter six, and chapter 13. Uh, he might be a governor of a location in Samaria, about 12 miles northwest of Jerusalem. We know at the end of Nehemiah, he actually has a daughter that marries into the Jewish high priest family. Uh, one commentator even noted this, quote, It is possible that Sanballat assumed some leadership responsibility of overseeing Judah between the time of Nebuchadnezzar, or, I'm sorry, Nehemiah's predecessor and Nehemiah's arrival. In other words, Sanballat, was serving basically like a de facto interim pastor, an interim governor, just kind of watching and running the show while there's no real leader in place. And if that's true, friends, there's just a good little nugget just to take out, write down for a reminder. Anytime a church, a community, a government, a school, any type of organization has a transition in power, God is at work and Satan is at work. God is at work, 
and Satan is at work. And apparently during this interim period before Nehemiah shows up, Sanballat has found himself in a leadership role in the meantime. The second ringleader was Tobiah, sometimes called Tobiah the Ammonite servant. He shows up again in chapter 2, chapter 4, and chapter 6. We'll learn in chapter 6 that he's actually pretty well connected with some of the leaders or the nobles in Judah. Uh, He's either another governor, but maybe a lesser governor. He kind of always is like a sidekick for Sanballat. And then we have Geshem. Oh, have pity for Geshem. There's not a whole lot about Geshem in here. Don't have pity too much for him. He doesn't love the Lord. But Geshem uh, is mentioned in chapter 2 and in chapter 6. What is most insightful about these men is where they're from. If you take a map and you study all the different locations, and then in verse 7, you'll even see the different names mentioned. These were geographical locations that would have surrounded Jerusalem. The north, the east, the south, and the west. Look at Nehemiah 4, verse 7. You'll see them right there. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites, etc., and so forth. In other words, the enemy is gaining strength. The enemy is finding people to side with them. The enemy is getting stronger and stronger and stronger because God is working and working and working. But why? Why were they so antagonistic against this good God who was doing a good thing through people who had a really dark past? Well, The rebellion most likely came because Nehemiah's presence was threatening their leadership. It was threatening their economic, political, and religious status in the area. See, people knew who Sanballat was and Tobiah was. That's what chapter 6 and chapter 13 is. They're ingrained in the Jerusalem community. Which means we can logically conclude there was an underlying jealousy going on as Nehemiah was stealing their thunder as the new man in town. That's because the building up of Jerusalem also meant the destruction of lesser and inferior kingdoms like their own. We've seen this before in redemptive history, haven't we? Throughout the Bible. If you know your Old Testament well, maybe you might recall. Joseph faced this same type of jealous hostility from his brothers in Genesis 37 when God promised to raise him up as a leader over them. David certainly faced this same type of jealous hostility through basically half of 1 Samuel when Saul realized that his reign as king was about to be replaced by the youngest of Jesse's sons. And when you read throughout the book of Acts, what do we see? The hostility against Paul and the church and the other partners in ministry. You know what it says underneath their persecution was? The jealousy of the Jews. That's what was fueling so much of their hatred towards the Christian church. And beloved, let's be honest. Behind some of our anger towards other people that we have this morning, the root of it, is jealousy. It's jealousy. Envy and jealousy. 
call it what it is. Galatians 5 says, Envy and jealousy are works of the flesh. It's an unappeasable monster of pride growling in our carnal, unredeemed humanness. What is envy and jealousy? It's when our discontented heart sets its affections on that which belongs to another and not to us. It's when our discontented hearts set its affections on that which specifically belongs to another and not to us. You see, when Tobiah and Sanballat and Geshem saw what God was doing through Nehemiah and not them, when they saw that the city of Jerusalem was being built up and their kingdoms would soon be destroyed, that jealousy came out. Friends, jealousy is ingrained in us as children and it rises up to its maximum velocity when we become adults. Jealousy shows up in churches. Jealousy shows up in marriages. Jealousy shows up in parenting decisions. Jealousy shows up in virtually every place in our life where pride has not died. Beloved, are you struggling with jealousy this morning? Are you jealous that someone gets more attention than you in your family, your siblings, in this church? Are you jealous that someone has a happier marriage than you do? Are you jealous that someone has kids with strength and opportunities and abilities that your kids don't? Are you jealous that someone might be better than you in your job? Someone might be a better parent than you? A better grandparent? Are you jealous of someone's ministry platform or their ministry success? Are you jealous of how God's using their gifts in a way that it doesn't seem he's using yours? Are you jealous of someone's physical looks? their beauty, their handsomeness? Are you jealous of the friend groups that other people have that you wish you had? Friends, that's called jealousy. That's envy. That is the sign of a discontented heart that is not happy in the Lord with his provision. And where there is anger and wrath over trivial and self-centered things, you best believe it, jealousy is fueling some of it. Listen to Proverbs 27, verse 4. Use this in your quiet time this week as a good heart examination. Proverbs 27, 4. Wrath is cruel. Anger is overwhelming. But who can stand before jealousy? May God expose by his spirit any roots of jealousy in our hearts. May we today make war and cut off these ugly roots of jealousy and may God give us joy in God and love and rejoicing in what God has done for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? So here in Nehemiah 4, what began as suspicion, most likely jealousy and scoffing, oh no, Sin doesn't sleep, does it? 
it's going to get more hostile. When God is working, the enemies of God will be working. You'll notice there in verse 1 how Sanballat was angry and greatly enraged and he jeered at the Jews. Uh, what, what is he trying to do here? Jeering. Making fun of. Mocking. Ridiculing. Name-calling. He's playing mind games. He's trying to psych them out. As the late J.I. Packer once said, this is a strategy called psychological warfare. We're trying to get in his head. You see, in verses 2 and 3, they're verbally assaulting them. You're weak. You're weak in your plans. You're weak in your strength. You're weak in your resources. You're going to fail before you get started. You're pathetic, you're weak, and you're wasting your time trying to rebuild these walls. They are spewing negative, untrue, non-praiseworthy, evil thoughts into their heads. They're saying you're a failure. Your life will never get better. You will never have a brighter day. There is no hope for you. You're weak in the present, and your past will always hurt you. You're working hard, but you won't succeed in what you're working for. You are a lost cause. Friends, have you ever been verbally attacked? Have you ever been verbally abused? Have you ever had someone spread what some lawyers would consider a defamation of character to soil your reputation amongst your family and your community? You know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Baloney, that's not biblical. Throw that nursery rhyme in the trash where it belongs. Harsh words are like sword thrust into our hearts. And of all people, Jesus understands that kind of pain. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. He was blasphemed and regarded as a demon and a madman. And he was and he still is the king of glory without stain and without sin. So what would Nehemiah do? He's getting tested, having some mind games thrown at him. When he gets that ugly email, when Nehemiah read that egregious website, when he read information that was false in the morning newspaper, when he read the clickbait on Facebook post, when he read the word vomit text message, when he overheard the gossip at a coffee shop, when he heard the chatter at the gym, while he heard lies while eating lunch with his family, what did Nehemiah do? Does he listen to those lies? And let them defeat him? How did Nehemiah respond to their mockery? Look with me in verses 4 to 5. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Friends, what did Nehemiah do? He prayed. He didn't respond back. He didn't catch their mudsling and throw it right back. He didn't play slander table tennis. He brought his pain to God. He took the harsh untrue, slanderous things said about him and the work to the only place where he can find true rest, 
to the only person who can give you true justice. He took it to the Lord. Friends, when you're slandered or untrue things are said about you, it can even be towards people you live with, people in this church, people you work with, people who live states from you. How do you respond? Is your initial response, I'm going to let them have it? Or is my initial response, I'm going to pray and trust the Lord? You see, Nehemiah went first to God because Nehemiah knew that sin is always first and foremost against God. That's why he says right there in verse 5, Do not cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger. Beloved, when you face times of slander and false rhetoric, yes, there are times where you should speak up, such as in a court of law, in the due process of church discipline, and through loving relationships where we're not superficial, but we hear our brothers and sisters out and we believe the best about them and listen carefully. And yet, most often, when hurtful, untrue things are said about you and I, we should remain silent. We should remain silent. God sees. That's what Nehemiah said. It's in your sight, Lord. These are your people. This is your work. God, you see. God, you, you know. You know what our charge is as Christians? Imitate our Lord Jesus Christ. For the cross, he endured for us, despising the shame. There was not deceit in his mouth. When reviled, he did not revile in return, but kept entrusting himself to God who judges justly. Friends, truth and time walk hand in hand. Truth and time walk hand in hand. Paul also challenges believers facing similar stuff that Nehemiah faced in Romans 12, 17 to 21. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, friends, these mind games weren't working, were they? They couldn't get them with texts and emails and chatter around the community. It just wasn't working. So they had to turn up the volume. They had to turn up the heat. They began to plot malicious plans without other people knowing to try to ensnare and stop it. Look at verses 8 to 9. And they all, did you see that? Plotted together. Sounds a lot like Jesus' life, wasn't it? One plot ever another. To come and fight against Jerusalem. And did you catch this? To cause confusion in it. You ever just been walking through your week sometimes and you feel like you're walking through a fog? It's just kind of hazy. You walk into a room, it just feels dense. People aren't looking you in the eye. They feel kind of cold. Everything just feels kind of chilled and distant. There's confusion in the room. Friends, that 
confusion is not from God. He's not the author of confusion. The father of lies is. And we pray to our God. There it is again, Nehemiah, praying to God. And set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Nehemiah looked to God in prayer as his sovereign protector. And that is the same privilege we have as too, to go to our sovereign protector. A John Piper once said this about prayer. See if this is how you describe your prayer life. Life is war. That's not all it is, but it is always that. Our weakness in prayer is owing largely to our neglect of this truth. Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. Nehemiah prayed, but Nehemiah was also a man of action, right? He saw that the God who ordains the ends is the God who ordains the means. And Nehemiah took action. Now you'll see there in Nehemiah's case, it was basically take cover, hide, get weapons, set up a security team, form a strategy to defend home base, form a strategy to protect the people you loved. In fact, look at verse 12. God is so sovereign, not only does he call us to pray, not only does he call us to take action, but sometimes when God's working, he will even notify others that are not even immediately involved in the situation that something's up. It's not gossip, it's I smell smoke, so there must be some fire. It says in verse 12, up to 10 times, Jews throughout the community were warning Nehemiah to take cover. Look at there in verse 12. He says, at the time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So this is kind of like the weather channel for them. You know, if you've got those cool apps, you know, we reach out to Michael Janice. Ian, a few others have some really high-tech apps for tornadoes coming. Well, this is their way of saying, sound the siren, take cover, return back to your homes. They're coming. And when Nehemiah gets word that his opponents are coming, they want to kill, they want to stop the work. The word on the street is they want to sabotage everything. So how does Nehemiah respond now? He equips the people for battle. He gets them ready and he gives them basically two charges. If you want to take notes, these would be super helpful as far as for the end of the sermon. He basically says this in verse 14. Number one, remember the Lord. When you're being attacked or opposed in your obedience to the Lord, number one, remember the Lord. And number two, fight for the people you love. Fight for the people you love. Number one, he called them to remember the Lord. Why does he do that? When the heat of fire and you're getting shot at, you become forgetful, right? You become crazy. You're like a chicken with its head cut off. You're running this and that. And the most calm people are usually the most safe people to be around. He says, people, take a chill pill. We serve an awesome God. He's the great and awesome God who brought about this restoration project. He's provided, he is strengthened, he is leading. Remember the Lord. And he also says, do not fear men more than you fear the Lord. 
Men are mortal. They are going to return back to the dust and go one of two places for eternity. Our God doesn't die. Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell, not what people can do to your body or your resume. Secondly, he said, fight for the people you love. Nehemiah turned to the people and he commanded them, fight for your brothers, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. In other words, he says, it's time to step up and stand up for the people you are called to protect and care for. And friends, really, the wider community. He was talking about everybody in the Jewish community, not just your individual home, but everyone around you. As an aside, did you notice something interesting? That Nehemiah did not instruct the women and children to fight. The men were called to stand up and fight for the weaker and more vulnerable. Gentlemen, this is where you need to tune me in if you've taken a nap. I don't care how much our culture confuses what a man and a woman is. One key component of being a biblical man is to provide, protect, and lead women and children. Active combat physical harm, threats of hostility, and the final oversight over the home and the church is given by Almighty God to men that are wanting to live up to that calling. That's what it means to be a man. If you were married, you are the head of your wife. You are the final protector under God for your family. Friends, being a biblical man is not being like John Wayne. Being a biblical man is being like Jesus Christ, the perfect man, the one who laid down his life in love for us, for our sins, and he died the death we deserve. He stood in the gap, not of just an opposing army, but the wrath of Almighty God for the sins we have committed, taking on the penalty we deserve so that we might be covered by God's grace. And get this, Jesus won the greatest battle of all by conquering the grave. And he did so not by killing, but by rising again. Jesus Christ is tender and meek, but he is fearless and courageous. And one day, that same Jesus is coming back on a white horse with fire and flames in his eyes, and he's not coming back to show pity anymore. He will destroy every enemy of God, including death, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. That's a Savior worth praising. And men, he's our example. Members of CCBC, pray that God would grant each man in this building spirit-empowered boldness to shepherd their families. Pray that every man in here would be willing to step in harm's way, verbal, spiritual, physical, family, for the well-being of others. As Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. And kids, there's a word for you here. When your parents, your mom and dad, 
are telling you no to certain friends you want to hang out with? Or they tell you no to dating a guy or a girl they don't think is good for you? Or they tell you you're not allowed to watch certain movies or TV shows or certain apps on your cell phone? Or you shouldn't have a cell phone, but anyway, that's another story. Or they give you a curfew you don't like. You know why they're doing that? They love you. They're trying to protect you. Their protection of you is in an imperfect protection, but it's a tangible way of God showing his love through them. And members of CCBC, that's what the elders are also called to do. Don't look at your elders as a threat. Look at your elders as a covering, a protection. We have vowed before God to stand in harm's way for your spiritual and overall well-being. And every man of this congregation, elder or not, should vow before God to do the same. That's biblical masculinity. That's something to be encouraged by. The Jews in Nehemiah's day, they're doing the work of the Lord. And the enemies of God are doing work against them. But guess who else is working? God himself. God is working. Did you catch there in Nehemiah verse 15? I love these phrases sometimes in our Bibles. When our enemies heard that it was known to us, in other words, God put the right people in the right path to let you know harm's coming, God had frustrated their plan. Friends, that's what happens when God's people pray. That's what, God, what happens when God's people step up and rise up and prepare for battle. The Lord frustrates the plans of the evil one. Friends, there is so much more going on in our lives in the unseen world than what you and I can see this morning. What did Jansen read earlier from Ephesians 6? Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Friends, if you're a note taker, this is the chewiest application heavy part of the sermon, which is the landing pad. So these are not on the screen. I'm going to repeat them multiple times. If you're not a fast writer, listen to the recording later. This is the so what of Nehemiah 4, okay? We're talking about spiritual warfare. We're talking about real, unseen, supernatural powers of darkness that hate you, that hate me, that hate marriages, that hates the church, that hates what God is doing through CCBC. This is real spiritual warfare. Question, how can you know if you are undergoing spiritual warfare? And how can you know that? I'm going to give you seven very brief and not exhaustive, by the way, signs you could be under spiritual attack. Qualified all that there for everyone who's trying to find something to add? Number one, the truth of God's word is being attacked. The truth of God's word is being attacked. God's word is being assaulted, undermined, and twisted. Think Genesis 3. Satan questioned our first parents. Did God actually say? The battle for the truth is always going to be the hottest part of spiritual warfare. It always has been, 
and it always will be. When Satan took on Jesus in the garden or in the wilderness, they're combating over scripture. Number two, the progress of God's work is being opposed. The progress of God's work is being opposed. Friends, this can happen from unbelievers on the outside, from persecution and martyrdom, even a government, a secular government that hates Christianity, or it can happen from the inside. Unrepentant sin goes unchecked. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Number three, the goodness of God is being called into question. The goodness of God is being called into question. God's character is being slandered. God's character is being called into suspicion. God's character and care of you is being put into doubt. Think of Job, chapters 1 and 2. If you ever find yourself plagued and dominated by depressive thoughts that God has abandoned you, somewhere in that cloudy thinking is probably spiritual warfare. Number four, half-truths masquerading as whole-truths. Half-truths masquerading as whole-truths. Here's what the Bible calls that, lies. They're being spewed and propagated by the father of lies, John 8, 44. This is bearing false witness. This is sowing seeds of discord amongst the brethren. Think of Proverbs 6, 6 to 11. Think of Sanballat and Tobiah's lies about Nehemiah and his reasons for being in Jerusalem. Number five, persecution. Persecution. Persecution especially happens to the vessels that God is using most mightily in his hand. Think of what Brother Tom read earlier from 2 Timothy 3.12. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Number six, you're experiencing abnormal amounts of temptation. You're experiencing abnormal amounts of temptation. Here's a little asterisk. Do not give the devil too much credit, by the way. James 1 says that our flesh does a really good job of tempting us to sin. We do not need to fall into this devil under every bush and every head cold nonsense. Don't give the devil much press. Give Jesus much press. However, if there are two sins that the evil one loves to get our Achilles heel and leave us ensnared by, it's fear and anger. That's his schemes. Fear and anger. Fear says this, I'm going to run away. I'm not going to be exposed I'm going to retreat from all confrontation or difficult conversations. I I think I'm going to lose something. So I'm going to respond in codependency, control, helicopter, or maybe even escapism. Then there's anger. I'm going to seek revenge. I'm going to hold a grudge. I'm going to believe the worst about my brother and sister in Christ. The movie reel in my mind of what this person did to me and what they did to my family keeps playing over and over again. What did Paul say in Ephesians 4? Do not let the sun go down on your anger. 
verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. Anger and fear. Ancient tricks. Number seven, depravity magnetizes depravity. Depravity magnetizes depravity. Ungodly people will link arms with ungodly people to entice you. Sin loves to share a blanket with other sins. Always has. Always will. Bad company corrupts good character. Be very discerning of who your friends are. Be very discerning of what church you join. Be very discerning about sharing personal things with untrustworthy people. But what prevents us from fighting the good fight? Because the reality is, not all Christians are engaged in the battle. Why is it that if we've been given the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, it seems so few Christians are wielding it? Let me give you five brief reasons or causes Christians don't fight. Number one, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. You're not going to call out sin in other people's lives if you're living in it yourself. Your love for the Lord might just be a pretense and costume. But really, when it's all said and done, you don't love the Lord and you don't love his people. Hypocrisy. That'll prevent you from fighting. Number two, consumeristic pragmatism. Consumeristic pragmatism. This is when churches go, hey, we want to please the people, give them what they want. We don't want to do anything to cause anyone to leave. So we're going to do whatever we can to keep them to stay. We're going to dumb down the sermon. We're going to water down the music. We're going to turn up the smoke, turn down the lights and up the lasers. We're going to do what the people want. Friends, let me just say a really hard word that most pastors probably are not going to say in this part of the country. Losing people in your church is not the worst thing that could happen. Losing people in your church is not the worst thing that could happen. You want people to be fed. You want them to be shepherded. But losing people in your one church, for whatever reason, could be God's way of pruning your church to greater health. Be very careful. Consumeristic pragmatism is rampant. Number three, the people you associate with can bring you down. The people you associate with can bring you down. The people you live with, work with, hang out with, they can dampen your love for Christ. They can disrupt the overall morale in your home or in the workplace. They're negative, they're complaining, they're critical. They see the bad in everything and everyone and not the sin in themselves. Number four, fear of what it will cost you. Fear of what it will cost you. If I'm really this bold for Jesus, I could lose my job. I could lose my business ventures. I could lose political ties, division in my family. There's an unhealthy, obsessive preoccupation with safety. And lastly, this is the one I'm speaking from my heart to you. Because I have fallen prey to this in the last two and a half years, and I've seen it on your faces. I've seen it in my office. I've seen it in confiding in me. It's battle fatigue. 
battle fatigue. You're worn out. You're grown weary of not seeing the results you hoped for, so you're giving up. Your prodigal child has worn you out. Your immature and selfish spouse has worn you down. The person you're discipling is not getting it. Your job is stretching you thin. Battle fatigue. It's a common reality for Christians for not engaging in the fight. So what should we do? Four brief points. Number one, remind yourself that spiritual warfare is real. Remind yourself that spiritual warfare is real. Satan is deceitful, and he hates Christ's church. Be watchful. Number two, remind yourself that Jesus has secured your salvation. He has conquered Satan. God is with us, and he will fight for us. Number three, there will be seasons of intense spiritual battles. There will be seasons, that means they're temporary, of intense spiritual battles. Did you notice in Nehemiah 4, for the remaining of the passage, they had to build on the wall with one hand, keep the weapon on their side and the other. Why is that? We're building, but we're on guard to fight. Friends, sometimes in our lives as Christians, whether it's at home raising kids or working crazy hours at work, it's going to feel like a thin layer of peanut butter spread over the bread. Day and night, day and night, day and night. Friends, it's okay to be weary in the work. But do not grow weary of the work. Lastly, number four, lean into the body of Christ. Lean into the body of Christ. Don't isolate yourself from this church. Don't isolate yourself from members who are trying to care for you. Don't isolate yourself from the elders who genuinely love you and want what's best for you. Lean into the church. In fact, that's exactly, in principle, what Nehemiah does. He's gathering them together, saying, we can't fight separated. We must fight together. One of the tricks of the old evil one is that he'll get Christians to fight at each other instead of against the enemy with each other. Verse 13, I stationed the people by their clans. Verse 16, and the leaders stood behind the whole council of Judah. Verse 18, the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Verse 20, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. Let's conclude. What happened to the young man in the church he was pastoring in Arkansas? Within a matter of 90 to 100 days, there was fierce opposition to the new leadership. And due to a whole host of providential hindrances, the pastor left with the aim to rebuild elsewhere. And so did a remnant of members who followed him to that new work. There are some people in this community that would say it ended in a failure. It was a tragic mistake. The naysayers and opponents won the day. But there are others deeply involved in this work that see it differently. The work may have stopped on one part of town, in one particular building, but a new work has begun and Christ's church is being built up on a new part of town. A work that has now been going on now for almost two years by the grace of God. When God's good hand is at work, the enemies of God will work overtime to try and stop it.
Jim Osmond gives us a really timely word. Here's what he says. Satan does not present his lies and deceptions in any truthful manner. He makes sin look alluring when in fact it is a soul-rotting poison. He tricks men into thinking that they can steal a pleasure and never pay the debt. He appears as an angel of light. He disguises error as truth and makes it sound like truth, look like truth, and feel like truth. He hides the darkness and deceives people into thinking they are walking in light when they are walking in complete spiritual darkness. He is amazingly effective at making lies believable, sin desirable, temptation unavoidable, and error irresistible. He is so effective that the only hope we have of being able to spot his lies is to be intimately familiar with the truth. We must be so well-versed in the truth, so faithful to the truth, and such a doer of truth that he will not be able to deceive us with lies. Apart from the word of God, we are sitting ducks. Remember the Lord. Fight for the people you love. Rally together. Our God will fight for us. And he will take us home. Let's pray. Father, you promise in your word that we will face many tribulations in this life. Whatever work you've called us to at home and at work and in church and other places, Lord, if we're seeking to do your will, we will be opposed. Our own flesh is enough battle to deal with. But there is an ancient one, an evil one, who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Lord, we pray that at CCBC we would be armed for the battle, building with one hand, ready to fight with the other. Lord, give us courage. Give us boldness to care for our families, to care for those we love. Lord, we pray that there is no member of this congregation being led astray. We pray that if they are ensnared, even this morning, we pray that you would give them freedom. Lord, even expose and uproot any hidden jealousy that might be there in our own hearts, as we saw it in Sambalat, in Tobiah, feeling threatened by Nehemiah's arrival and threatened by the work going on in Jerusalem. Lord, we pray that we would put down our arms in fighting with each other and instead contend together for the faith of the gospel. Lord, we love you. We praise you that you've not called us to live this life alone. Lord, we pray that you would use this passage in Ephesians 6 and others to teach us of the importance of rallying together. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.